We are in our series on Deuteronomy. Um, I believe we have about four weeks, five weeks left of this. It's, it's just been a really great series to learn about God, learn about his character, uh, learn about how our God is, is never changing. Uh, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, and I, I feel like we've really been able to explore uh, in the scripture that understanding of God and how he truly is the same. Um, and the things that have changed his covenant with us do not change his character, do not change who he is and what he longs for with his people. And we've been able to explore that in chapter after chapter after chapter. Uh, today we're in Deuteronomy chapter 19. It's going to sound very similar uh, to what we talked about last week in Deuteronomy 17. Uh, but whereas we're going to do two different angles. Last week, we talked about sin in the community. This week, we're going to talk about conflict and community. Uh, and this is actually something that we go over in all of our membership classes. For everybody that goes through membership, we're going to go over, uh, we go over these verses that we go over today, which is uh, not Deuteronomy 19, but what we're pairing it with in the New Testament, which is Matthew 18. Uh, so first, we're going to read Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 to 21. And you can read along with me on the screen. It says, uh, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And that's what we're going to focus on today, but we'll keep on reading. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit such, an evil, such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So last week I alluded to how important the witnesses were in a trial. And we have the commandment, do not bear false witness. And what that means is that when somebody is going to court, uh, they go to court based off of the testimony of a witness. And they bring other witnesses, at least two or three, as they charge against somebody. And this is a very serious thing because you can lose your eye, you can lose your arm, you can lose your life for a lot of offenses in the court in the Old Testament. And so this law that Moses gives deals with false witnesses. How do you deal with a false witness? If you are found to be a false witness, what is to be done to you? Well, let's say David comes up to me and he says, Justin, you know, I saw what you did. Uh, I don't know. I do, I do something against him, and he takes me to court, and he's trying to kill me. You know, this is normal day life with me and David. Uh, and, <laughs> and so then we get to court, and I didn't do anything wrong, and so I argue my case, and then they figure out that David was lying about me this whole time, you know? Uh, and the thing that he wanted me to get, let's say if the penalty, if I was found guilty of what David brought against me was death, then instead of me getting death, he would get death for that penalty. Uh, if, if it was, I was accused of stealing something, and you know, they're going to cut off my hand for it, then instead, his hand 
would be cut off. And so the point of this is they wanted to show the gravity of bringing a false accusation against somebody. Because if you falsely accuse somebody and you were caught in a false accusation, then the very thing that you tried to accuse somebody of would be the very thing, the consequence that you then would experience. And so this idea of two or three witnesses in an accusation or in a court to make sure that that there is justice to be done in the community is actually something that Jesus brings back into play in the church. And we're going to read about that in Matthew chapter 18. Now, before we read this passage, I want us to realize something about this. That this is one of the most misquoted passages in scripture. I'm going to see if you, when you hear it, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, But again, this is one of the misquoted passages in, in the Bible. And what Jesus does is he takes what Moses did is he laid down a law for a nation and how to deal with witnesses. And then Jesus then takes that and he uses that and gives us a system for dealing with conflict in church. And so we're going to read Matthew 18 verse 15 to 20. Again, you can read on your screen. Jesus says, if your brother, in this case, brother or sister, sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it shall be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And so... That last passage, this is one of the most misquoted passages. You know, if you've ever been to a prayer meeting, and usually well-meaning prayer meetings, we start off the prayer meeting with, you know, where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst. Um, And really what this is talking about, uh, and that we're going to get into, is that the government of the church, the church, if you don't know what church, the Greek word for that is ekklesia, which is a ruling body. Uh, When the church comes together, and we're going to see how this happens to bring unity and restoration within its body, then God is saying he is present in the governmental decisions of the church. He is there. Uh, Because the truth and the reality is, I pray alone every single day, and God is there. Jesus is with me as I'm praying. I don't need somebody to be with me in order to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. So the The point of this passage is not to say that the only time you can pray with somebody or the only time Jesus is amongst you or present in your prayers is when two or three people are praying together. But what the passage is saying is what we're going to talk about, which is how do we bring unity, forgiveness within the church through conflict? And Jesus is present among those decisions in the church. And so first thing I want to understand is the context of this passage Uh, Matthew, uh, the the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is writing specifically to Jewish believers. So when he writes the Gospel according to Matthew, he specifically has Jewish people in mind when he's writing this Gospel. Which means that when he is quoting Jesus here about the two or three witnesses, he is talking to people that understand Deuteronomy 17, 
what we've talked about last week, and people who understand Deuteronomy 19, what, we talk, what we're talking about this week. And also, what we have to understand is the passage that this, that this scripture sandwiched in between. So the passage right before this, and bear with me because this is important, is the passage of the lost sheep. We understand the parable of the lost sheep that Jesus goes after the lost sheep. He leaves the 99 in order for the one that he can save and bring back into the fold. So it's a passage that emphasizes restoration. And then right after this passage, right after the verses that we just read in Matthew 18, is the passage, the parable of the unforgiving servant, which emphasizes forgiveness. So Sandwiched in between one of the most amazing passages on restoration and one of the most amazing passages on forgiveness is this passage dealing with conflict in the church. And so we need to understand that. Because a lot of time when we have conflict with one another, our goal for remedying that conflict is to be right. Is to make sure that I win this argument. But if we understand the scripture, if we understand that that is actually a work of the flesh to always be right in every argument. And really the main goal that scripture calls us to is one of unity, forgiveness, and restoration. And so we're going to kind of break this up and start off in verse 15, and we're going to read through Matthew chapter 18, this passage together. In verse 15, the first part, it says, if your brother sins against you, we're going to stop right there. So what do you do or when someone sins against you? That's, that's what we're going to answer today. Uh, and what we need to understand about this is that people will sin against you in the church. And let's define that phrase, sin against you, for a minute, because I want to bring this to reality. I want to bring this to your reality of, of what we go through on an everyday basis in life and realize that people in the church, maybe, you know, the person to your left or right right now, look at them and think, you may do this to me one day. This is possibly you're going to do this. And I'm going to have to react properly. But what are the things they may do? They may gossip about you. I mean, maybe a day where you find out this person was talking poorly about you, maybe even making up something about you. That person, you know, we may manipulate somebody here to get our own way. That when someone sins against us, they may, and, and the practical definition of that, we may find out that somebody manipulated us to get their own way. There may be somebody in here that is impatient or curt with us, just constantly, just, you know, we, we try to talk to them about something or we try to have a conversation with them and they're just... Get away from me, I got something to do. There's other things that are more important than you right now. That We may have these conversations. We may have somebody that's just always rude to us. We don't know what we did to them, but we find that we're, they are always constantly rude to us. We, we try to be their friend, we try to hang out with them, but we have patterns of rudeness. There may be somebody that always steamrolls you. They have... Maybe constantly you find them to be uncaring towards your sympathization, your situation, never empathetic towards you. Somebody that you have an idea and they just, they don't care about your ideas. There may be somebody that lies to you so that they get their own way. Lies to you so 
that they don't have to reveal their true heart and their true intentions to you. These are all ways that people may sin against you. These are ways that people have sinned against me in the church. These are ways that I have sinned against other people in the church. God knows I'm not perfect. And so when it says, if your brother sins against you, we have to understand that there is a long list. I covered about 0.01% of the ways that people may sin against you in the church. There is a long list of the people that are sitting in this room may do against you, may sin against you. And these are things that happen in the church, and we have to understand that. And why is that? Because the church is full of sinful people. See, people always expect the best people to be in church. That's where a lot of misunderstanding comes in. You know, I pray that we turn into people that are full of the fruit of the Spirit and we are patient, kind, loving, good, don't get our own way. I pray that this becomes who we are, that we turn into these people, but we have to apply some logic to this understanding of what the church is. And the church, if it's doing its job, the church is full of what? Broken, sinful, imperfect people in need of Jesus. If the church is doing what it's supposed to be doing, if the church is actually doing what Jesus said he came to do, which is calling what? Not the righteous, but the broken the ones actually in need of the Savior, the ones actually in need of Him, where He sits with the prostitute, He sits with the tax collector. If the church is doing its job, then we are a room full of broken, imperfect people. And so what happens is that when we have a room full of imperfect people, when we have a room full of people that need Jesus to transform their lives, that means we have a room full of possible sinning against one another. It's just the reality. And, and a lot of times people come into the church expecting perfect people to act perfect towards them 24-7. And we get into a shock when somebody does something and says, oh. <laughs> Zion. So rude to me. This, the Zion church, they're just awful people. It's a true story. I remember we were at church for a month, and somebody came up to me and said, your church just doesn't seem kind to people. I said, can we just unpack that for a second? And uh, this was a person that had been a Christian for a long time, and they said, yeah, you know, I was, I was hanging out with a few people, and this one person was just super rude to me, and they, I, just, I tried to connect with them, and they weren't connecting, and then they got up and walked away, and I was like, can you describe this person? They described me, I said, do you realize that that was the third week that person had ever been in church in their life? And here you are, a Christian, for 10 years, and you're getting offended because a person who's been in church don't even know if they accepted and followed Jesus yet is, is being rude to you? Do you understand what that looks like, what that how it sounds like? And Church is just a bastion of offense. We just expect that everybody is going to lay out the red carpet everywhere we go. But if we really realize what church is made up of is full of, then we're cognizant that there are people in this room, including myself, that we are broken, we are imperfect, we are sinful. And when all of these people get together, then there is going to be conflict. 
There is going to be rubbing the wrong way. There is going to be offense that happens between people. We cannot have a theology and an understanding of God that only works when everybody is nice to us. Our theology of community must include an understanding of close, broken, sinful people. Do you understand that? Our understanding and our theology of God must include what it means to be close and friends with sinful people. Because if you want any friends in the church, then you need somebody else with that same theology. And if you are here unaware of your brokenness and your sinfulness, then I have some messages that I'll send you after the service. (laughs) Put you in your place. See, too often we only have a grace for ourselves in hard situations. We think, you know, when I mess up, we think, man, you know what? I was going through a long day. I had a a hard time. Uh, My morning was rough. You know, I had a long week at work and maybe I got into a fight with my spouse or maybe, you know, my friend just stood me up the other night and so... I come in grumpy in the morning and I'm being rude and curt and mean to everybody. And in my head, I'm thinking, you know, it's okay. I'm usually nice, but I extend grace to myself because I understand what I've been through. And so often we are so ready to extend grace to ourselves when we are acting simple or we are acting rude and mean towards other people, but we are not ready to extend that same grace and that same mercy towards other people when they are having a rough morning. All we see is the person that cuts us off. We don't see the person that's in a rush to get to the hospital because maybe their wife is giving birth. Right? All we see is that, how, who do you think you are? Maybe they're late to a function and this is the last function that they could be late before they get fired. Right? We are so ready to extend grace to ourselves for doing wrongdoing, but we are not at a place yet to extend grace to others for doing wrongdoing towards us. We don't want to understand why they were rude. We just want to tell them and let them know you were rude. We don't want to understand all the the whole situation behind what happened with somebody. We just want them to realize what they did was wrong. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is crafting a theology of healthy conflict in the church. And he knows people will wrong each other. And I think what he, what he does here is amazing because he really sets, he, he sets a standard that being sinless is not what marks the church. What marks the church is how we react when others sin against us. See, a sinless people, that is not the church. What is the church is when you do something, when you sin against me, how I react towards that sin towards me, that is what marks God's people. When you curse me out, when you gossip about me, when you lie to me, when you manipulate me, how I act towards you in that instance is what marks me as a follower of God. And so how do we respond? In the second part of verse 15, Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Right, so step one is when someone does something against you is go gossip to 10 people. 
then get over it, but still remember it. Pretend to yourself you are going to talk to them. Never do it. And then when they do it again, cut them off. Right? That was step one that Jesus just gave. No. Step one is what? Go and tell that person alone. Go and tell that person alone. That word alone. Uh, in Greek, it means alone. Just then. <laughs> Just talk to that person, right? Don't get the input of your friends. Like, there's a way to talk to somebody about a situation without throwing someone under the bus. Do we understand that? And so if somebody annoys you, usually we, you know, we got our homies, we call up. Our fat five, you remember that? Was that like T-Mobile or something? It's crazy I'm at that point now where I can say people are too young to remember that. <laughs> but we have our homies that we call and just say, yo, can you believe what Dave just did to me? this, this, and this to me. Where instead, really what we should do when we call our friends is confession time. Yo, I'm really upset at somebody that annoyed me just now. And instead of wanting to have godly resolution and godly conflict with that person, I just want to talk about them. I want to hate them and I want to be angry at them. So I always tell people, when you want to talk to your friends, gossip about yourself, don't gossip about the other person. Start confessing your sin in the situation. And your sin in the situation is, I don't even want to talk to this person. I'm hating this person right now. I'm really ticked off. And instead of wanting to talk to them and understanding what happened, I want to tell you about this person's sin against me. That's a good rule of thumb. But Jesus says what? Go and tell this person alone. So don't involve 30 people, don't talk to those fast five first, unless you're confessing about your sins so you can work up to having a proper conflict resolution with that person. And then you go up to that person. You go up to them alone and you go up to them first and you say, what's good, man? Just like that. <laughs> but Jesus says, go to that person alone. And so what should happen? And the third part of verse 15, he says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. See, a lot of people see the pain of conflict, but they never see the blessing in it. They see the pain of having to go up to somebody and tell them, man, what you did offended me. What you did, it, it hurt me. Or well, why are you acting towards this? We, are, we do not, human nature, human society, is we, we are not built to love conflict. In fact, we are built for the exact opposite. We hate conflict. But the fact of the matter is, is when we have conflict with somebody, usually nine times out of ten, the other end of that conflict is we have a stronger relationship with that person. I know this as fact because I have conflict with a lot of people. You can ask any one of my best friends. They can tell you Stephanie's laughing very loud right now because all the times me and her have had conflict. <laughs> Where I have done something to wrong my friend. 
And I know this to be true, is that when we bring it to them, when that person comes to me and says, hey, Justin, this is what you did to annoy me. You know what my first reaction is? Well, this is why you're wrong. That's always my first reaction, always. Now, whether I have filtered that first reaction is dependent on how deep the Holy Spirit has been working in my heart that day. And whether I go to second reaction, which is, okay, let me hear and try to understand what I did to you. But what happens is Jesus says is when you go to that person, you go to them alone, you haven't gossiped about them, you haven't told the world about it, what happens is usually at the end of this conflict is is you have gained a friend. You have gained a deeper friendship. Study after study shows that the only way to have true community is to go through conflict with people. You cannot have a real friendship. You cannot have a close friendship unless you guys have butted heads about something. Do you know that? I've known people for 15 years and we've never had conflict about anything. Guess what? There are people that I've known for a year that we've had conflict about 20 things that I'm closer with. Because we have learned to walk walk through the hard things of life and at the end of all of those things, we become closer together. We have a deeper understanding for one another. We have a deeper love for one another. We've been through something. We have an archive of memories now of all the times that I can make fun of you for all the things that you annoyed me about. Right? We have, we have the, 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 the deep friendship that conflict brings that you cannot get any other way. And in the church, we are so used to putting up a facade with one another, and we are so used to just smiling, and we think that the fruit of the Spirit of being kind, patient, and good towards one another means fake smiling until we want to kill ourselves. It's the truth. This is, this is what we think the fruit of the Spirit is. It's just a fake smile. That is not the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit of patience is when somebody brings something against you and you don't want to hear it anymore, but you're going to sit through it and listen to everything that they have to say. That is patience. When somebody is rude to you every single Sunday, yet you are still kind towards them, even though you know they have something against you and refuse to talk to you about it. That's kindness. Self-control is not letting them know what the five fingers said to the face. (laughs) After they annoyed me for the tenth time. It's not erupting in anger and screaming at them. When I want to say, man, we're going through this again. What is wrong with you? This is real life. We are so used to bad theology of conflict that we usually are just people trying to put on a pretty face with one another 24-7. We're not ready to enter into the ugliness of each other's lives, the brokenness of each other's lives that come with conflict. And we take every step and every measure to stay away from this. So when someone does wrong us, we go to every single person but them. hard truth of conflict is it brings you closer to people. If you want to have deeper relationships, have conflict with people. It's just truth. 
You want to have conflict with somebody? You want to make conflict with somebody? I'm going to tell you how to make conflict with somebody. You tell somebody, tell me what you really think of me. I'm not going to get mad. I just want to know what are the things that annoy me, annoy you most about me. That is how you artificially create conflict with somebody that you want to get closer with. Evaluate me right now. I've said that a few times. People have regretted it. <laughs> but I can tell you those people are still friends. The ones that actually tell you the truth when you say that, you're like, yo, you're cool. I respect that. Most people, you know, who say that, they don't want to have conflict. He's just like, uh, nothing. I like you. You know? But when someone actually throws down when I, said that, when I say that to them and they just let me know, well, actually, Justin, now that you mention this, it's like, son, did you have a list in your phone that you were waiting for me to ask about this? So, but what happens in the one out of ten times when you don't have a closer friendship? What happens when that small percentage, you don't gain a brother? What does Jesus say in verse 16? He says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And this is where Jesus brings in the court system that the Jewish people are very familiar with. So you don't need witnesses of the sin that the person did. You just need people that will be there with you. And we have to understand a few things about this. That when we take somebody, we're not taking someone to gang up on somebody. We're taking a mediator. We're taking an objective third party. We're taking a leader in the church. The reason is I've talked to you about this. We didn't come to a resolution our desire is restoration and forgiveness, right? This is what the passage is, is sandwiched in. So I'm not bringing my boys and my girls in so that I can attack you now with more people and tell you even more why you're wrong. My goal here is not to win the argument. My goal here is not to be right. My goal here is to gain a brother or a sister. My goal is restoration and forgiveness. And so if someone doesn't listen, then it's like, okay, we're going to phase two. I'm going to get somebody to mediate an objective third party to sit down and help us talk this out so that we can listen to each other and make sure that we are staying in a patient, kind, self-controlled environment. Don't bring a hype man with you. Yo! Oh. Ooh. Don't bring a hype man with you to the conversation. That will make it worse. Bring somebody that you know is level-headed. That you can say this person will be objective, that both of you can talk about what happened, and that person's goal will be to listen and to help mediate through that conversation and help bring restoration and forgiveness. All right? And this, this is very prudent for several things. It, can, it, it stops the he said, she said kind of thing. Or like sometimes... Somebody keeps bringing conflict to one person alone a lot. And it's like, it's at this point, you're harassing the other person. And then the he said, she said list just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. 
and somebody had sinned against you and you're trying to resolve the situation, but really now you're not looking too good in this situation either because you keep attacking them and keep talking to them and they keep misconstruing what you're saying and then talking to other people. I've been in church a long time. I can give you every crazy scenario of what gossip does and all the different paths that it goes through. And so what you want to do is then that next conversation, hey, I already talked to this person about it. They did it again. This happened again. So I'm going to get somebody else to come and sit with me to have this conversation. This keeps you safe from being accused of being malicious. And it helps you bring another perspective to bring restoration to that friendship. And then Jesus has this fail safe, which is what we talked about last week. So I'm not going to get too deep into this. I'll just read it again and give a quick comment. Verses 17 to 20, it says, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let, it be to, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We saw this played out in 1 Corinthians 5 last week. But what did, what did Paul do? Is he handed somebody to Satan and he kicked them out of the church for unrepentant sin. If you want more understanding of that, I encourage you just listen to last week's. I'm not going to dive too deep. But unrepentant sin and what it means in the community as a whole is that somebody is not looking for what Jesus wanted, which is forgiveness, restoration, people that don't need to be right and to have their own way done every single time. We need to remember where these verses are sandwiched. This is the failsafe. This is the, this is the option that we don't want to get to. This is the option that keeps the church safe from collapsing as a community. There is a... Uh, a fine line between being someone who is a giver, somebody who is being patient and kind, and being someone who is a doormat. Jesus is not calling us to be doormats. He is not calling us to have people walk all over us. But he is calling us to have good conflict with one another and to keeping the community pure. Jesus affirms that he will be divinely present among his disciples as they seek unity in rendering decisions. He promises, I will be there. This is important to him. This is important to the church. This is important to the community. And so much so that Jesus promises, I will be present among you when you make these decisions. Because purity in the church and unity in the church is of great importance to him that he lays out these systems and these processes for it. Too often our process for conflict is backwards. We tell everyone in the church first, then we bring in our boys to attack the person, and then at the end we end up in a one-on-one -one feud with that person. Jesus says, no, it's, that's backwards. First we go to them alone, then we bring in some healthy outsiders, then we bring it to the congregation. This is the kind of church that we want to be. Not a church that pretends that we have it all together. 
Not a church that pretends that everybody in here is perfect. Not a church of the facade smile week in and week out. We want to be a church that instead of pretending to have it all together, realizing our brokenness and learning how to be community within that brokenness. Learning to have Jesus present in our disunity so that we can bring unity among us. Learning how to be in deep community with one another through conflict so that we don't just have these pseudo-friendships that we see on Sunday, but we have real friends that we get to walk through life with that we can say, remember that time where you were a jerk to me. Remember that time when I hated you? Remember my first, our first impression of each other? Those are some of my best friendships. Because we were able to work through these pains with one another. And we have an archive of memory, of pain, and of love, and of forgiveness, and of restoration that we can bank on that grows and deepens our equity with one another in our relationships. And so, God, I pray that we are not a perfect Church, I pray, God, that we are always a church that welcomes the lost, that welcomes the broken, that welcomes the sinful person among our midst. And that in that, Father, that we would be a people that have a theology of conflict rather than a theology of perfection. Father, that we would be a people that strive to be healthy rather than striving to be perfect. We thank you for being amongst us right now. Lord, for changing our hearts to wanting to win and wanting to be right, to instead wanting forgiveness and restoration. That we would not be a people that just wants to get our own way, but that we would be a patient and a kind and a good and a self-controlled people in the midst of hardship, in the midst of sin, in the midst of brokenness, Father, that your Holy Spirit would work on our church and work in our community. We thank you that as we act this way, that you will be in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm gonna invite you to stand if you can.